Lupus is an autoimmune disease that affects over a million and a half Americans. Particularly women, and it's about 90% of lupus patients are women. And there's a significant disparity in which women it most commonly affects. African Americans, Asian Americans, and Hispanic Americans have a higher incidence than Caucasians with lupus. Leading one researcher to head up a clinical trial in addressing this disparity within the disease's largest population. It's very that African-American women suffer the greatest burden from lupus. If we can make improvements within this group, then really we're moving the meter with regard to public health burden of the disease considerably. And hear a first-hand account of living with lupus from someone who has it. Or, more accurately, I have lupus, but lupus doesn't have me. I can't get away from it. I accept it. We're learning about lupus inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Dr. David Gaisley is Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Rheumatology, at Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin. As a rheumatologist, Dr. Gaisley specializes in the treatment of diseases characterized by inflammation in the joints, tendons, ligaments, bones, muscles, even organs. Among the conditions he treats is lupus, which is the focus of today's show. In the U.S., approximately 1.5 million Americans suffer from lupus, with an estimated 16,000 new cases diagnosed each year. But what exactly is lupus? Dr. Gaisley says it's important to first understand that lupus is a complex autoimmune disease. I think it is kind of the quintessential autoimmune disease. And so the best explanation for autoimmune disease in general would be the immune system, rather than being there to fight off infection, at some point turned against itself and starts attacking the body at almost any location of the body, and that's what lupus is. It can affect almost any organ system in the body. And while 1.5 million diagnosed cases may sound like a lot, it's still a relatively rare disease if you compare it to, say, rheumatoid arthritis. That's more common. That's about 1% of the population, so it's rarer than rheumatoid arthritis. But I think it's a disease that maybe with more recognition, the incidence and prevalence might become higher. Dr. Gaisley says anyone can get lupus, but there's one segment of our population that's most vulnerable. Particularly women, and it's about 90% of lupus patients are women. Men can still get lupus, but it's much rarer in men. Even more specifically, folks of color and minorities, so African Americans, Asian Americans, and Hispanic Americans have a higher incidence than Caucasians with lupus. In fact, the incidence rate of lupus among African American females is especially high. Coming up, 
we'll learn about a new clinical trial addressing this disparity. That's later on in this show. Ahead of that, we asked Dr. Gaisley, at what age is someone typically diagnosed with lupus? Usually the first diagnosis is middle teens, like 15, up to middle age, around 44 is where the age of diagnosis typically develops. As far as what causes someone to contract lupus... We really don't know the answer to that. We know there is definitely a genetic component, but that's not the entire story. There seems to be some other sort of trigger in the environment, something else that seems to trigger the disease, and we don't know all the details. He adds that something else suspected of playing a role to some degree hormones. We know that 90% of lupus patients are women. We think it's very obvious that there is a hormone role here. Particularly estrogen can have effect on certain cells of the immune system, but we don't know exactly how the hormones play a role. One thing that is known, while it's likely passed on genetically, lupus isn't contagious. Lupus is definitely not contagious. It's not an infectious disease, so you don't need to be concerned about being around others with lupus. What specific environmental factors are suspected of being linked to lupus? I think the ones that are suspected are things like viruses. You may have heard of EBV or Epstein-Barr virus. It causes mono. That one has been speculated. UV light exposure and sunlight exposure has been speculated, but there really hasn't been a single identified trigger. Speaking of single, is lupus a singular disease? Or are there different types of lupus? You can think of lupus as having four different types. The lupus that we end up in rheumatology, and which is the most common, is systemic lupus, or systemic lupus erythematosus, and that's probably about 70% of cases. Then, there's a type which primarily affects the skin, called cutaneous lupus. Under that, there's something called acute lupus, something called discoid lupus, and there's another one called subacute cutaneous lupus, and each of those have their own risk to go on to develop systemic lupus. The third type of lupus is a phenomenon called drug-induced lupus. So taking certain prescription drugs for other conditions can cause a type of lupus? Yes, drugs like hydralazine, which is a blood pressure medication, minocycline, which some patients will use for things like acne, and another big one are the TNF-alpha inhibitors, things like Humira, Enbrel, and these are drugs often used in inflammatory bowel disease and rheumatoid arthritis, and they are also well known to have the ability to trigger lupus. The fourth and final type of lupus is known as neonatal lupus, which is where babies get lupus right after birth. Women with a certain antibody in their blood can cross the placenta and cause problems in a fetus, and they can lead to things like rashes, and most severely, it can cause heart block issues. Next, Dr. Gaisley shared some common symptoms of lupus, particularly systemic lupus, including extreme fatigue. Universally, patients experience fatigue, and a lot of times fatigue is really multifactorial. People are not getting good sleep because of their pains or stresses related. All of that contributes painful stiffness of joints and muscles. That usually is one of the things that brings people to their doctors in the first place is their joints hurt. It's an inflammatory process. People tend to have a lot of stiffness, so that's a feature to watch out for. A reaction to cold in the extremities, known as Raynaud's phenomenon. Often people describe, you know, reaching into their refrigerator or going into an air-conditioned rooms, their fingers will suddenly turn ghost white and then they get kind of tingly or painful and that can mean that there may be an underlying connective tissue disease such as lupus. Sensitivity to sunlight. It can be a trigger of skin rash, or it could also be they just don't feel well in the sun. They kind of have a malaise or they just feel poorly when they're in the sun and physical symptoms, including things such as hair loss. Kind of patchy balding, usually on the temporal part of the scalp. 
and an often telltale facial rash shaped like a butterfly. It's a red inflamed rash that goes over the cheeks and goes across the nose. It's a type of cutaneous lupus, but the one that's most predictive of having full body lupus. When someone presents symptoms of lupus, how does the diagnostic process begin? We would ask a lot of questions. We would kind of do what we call a full review of systems and asking if they have any symptoms related to those. Then there are tests to aid in the diagnosis. There are many tests and those can range from common lab tests that doctors will do looking at things like blood counts, kidney function, urine samples. Those can help look for abnormalities. And then there's a specific test called the anti-nuclear antigen test and that's a really important test for lupus because almost nobody with lupus has a negative test. So if you have lupus, you should have a positive ANA test. From there, the lab can run additional antibody testings to help us determine how aggressive the lupus disease might be. And additional testing may help make an accurate diagnosis. Things like skin biopsies to help determine if it looks like a lupus rash. And then lastly would be if there's evidence of kidney disease, do a kidney biopsy, and that would be able to get tissue and see if there's inflammation in the kidney typical of lupus. But Dr. Gaisley says diagnosing lupus can be tricky because many of its symptoms are shared with other conditions. You know, joint pain and fatigue is really common these days, and there's lots of causes for that, ranging from things like osteoarthritis arthritis or things like fibromyalgia syndrome, those things can also have joint pain and fatigue as common mimics. Leading many in medical circles to refer to lupus as the great imitator, a description he finds accurate. There was a running joke in medical school. Teachers always said, what could be causing this? You could always say lupus because it would almost be on every list of things that can cause a symptom or a sign. So yeah, very much so. I think it can really be a great imitator. Focusing next on treatment, there are some effective drugs used in treating lupus. The big category of drugs is their immunosuppression drugs. So we are knocking down an overactive immune system to try to reduce the immune system's attack on the body tissues. And then we also use common things like topical steroid creams, which are ointments that can be applied to skin rashes. Anti-inflammatories can help with things like joint pains. But there's one medicine he highlights as particularly effective. A very important medicine called hydroxychloroquine. Really important to reduce the damage that lupus can do. We also know from big studies that it can actually prolong life. It's kind of a lupus vitamin. In other words, everyone with lupus should be on hydroxychloroquine unless they have some allergy to the drug. So how effective are treatments in helping patients have quality of life while battling lupus? With appropriate adherence to the medications and if they're following up regularly, I think we can get people back on track. Based on the many different symptoms of lupus, a collaborative team approach is most effective for treating it which is why he's spearheading a lupus dedicated clinic. It's still kind of developing, but our goals would be to offer a lupus home for patients. All in the hopes of slowing the progression of lupus and perhaps one day preventing it altogether. But in the meantime, even as physicians and clinicians, we don't have a full understanding of this disease. And that can be really frustrating for patients, particularly women at the prime of their life. And then this kind of throws a curveball and it can be really challenging. We'll learn how challenging from a local woman who has lupus later on this show. Next, we focus our CTSI on an important lupus-related clinical trial as we bring in Kayla Pierce. Thanks, Brian. Dr. Edith Williams is an associate professor in the College of Medicine, Department of Public Health Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Williams has done extensive research related to lupus, particularly in African-American communities that are hit the hardest. She is currently principal investigator of an interventional clinical trial for a program called PALS. 
PALS is an acronym for... PALS stands for Peer Approaches to Lupus Self-Management. And she tells us what the PALS program is. The PALS study is an effort to introduce peer mentoring as a means of remediating some of the symptoms in lupus in African-American women. Why does she think peer mentoring could be important in self-management of lupus? Disease self-management is difficult for African-American women who face a unique set of social determinants of health and other kinds of barriers to care. She's hoping to use this evidence-based method in an understudied population to see if we could see the same gains in disease self-management as well as anxiety, depression, stress, and trust in the healthcare system. Dr. Williams says one specific issue influenced her to launch the PALS clinical trial. One of the things that they felt was missing from their care was their ability to speak with and interact with women who are like them, other women with lupus. Women receive this diagnosis and they feel isolated. So this was something that was requested by our patient population. So understanding the need for the PALS program, the goal of her clinical trial is... To improve self-management in our population of African-American women with lupus. Learning how to effectively cope with symptoms that can be dealt with at home without having to come into the emergency room. Another goal of PALS... Better communication among lupus patients. Not only communication with their providers, but also communication with their families. Letting families know what's going on with them in a way that they can get the kind of support that they need at home. Next, she shares key inclusion criteria for patients enrolled in the PALS clinical trial. They just have to be African-American women with a diagnosis of systemic lupus. We do ask that they don't have cognitive impairments or been given six months or less to live so that they can participate in the trial for its duration. How many lupus patients will be enrolled? We have a target enrollment of 300 patients over the duration of the study. And are patients still enrolling today? Yes, so we're currently enrolling. We are in the second year. But while this clinical trial is being conducted out of the Medical University of South Carolina, the patients... They can be located anywhere. The beauty of this program is we have been able to really increase the access with this population of women. Travel burden is an issue, so it's harder for them to get to a centrally located site to participate on a regular basis. So even a lupus patient here in Wisconsin who qualifies can participate? Absolutely. Dr. Williams explained that half of the patients are matched with a peer mentor, while the other half participate in support groups. What's the significance of the dual enrollment format for this trial? We've hypothesized that the mentored condition is going to have better outcomes than a support group alone. And so what we've done with the support group as our control condition is we have taken all of the structure away, so we just provide the oversight. By comparison, the peer-mentored sessions are structured. We provide the structure with the mentored session so that it's not just free-flowing conversation, so we can truly be comparing the structured mentored relationship to something that is more organic. Speaking of mentors, Dr. Williams says their qualification criteria are the same as the patient's, with a few additions. We do ask that our mentors have some college education, been diagnosed for two years or longer, and they have to have a score of more than seven on the 10-point SLE self-efficacy scale. And that scale really gives insight into their competence to help other women. She personally interviews mentors to make sure they are up to the task. I 
actually hold one-on-one mentor interviews where I ask questions to make sure that these ladies are in a place where they could really help other ladies who may be struggling with issues. For the peer-mentored patients, what topics are focused on? There are 12 sessions. The first six sessions follow issues such as medication, exercise, nutrition, communicating with your family and with your physician, stress management and relaxation. Then there are sessions focusing on culturally tailored topics based on feedback from the trial's patient population. like recognizing when you need to go to the hospital, knowing when you're having a flare and when you're not, understanding when you may be depressed, when you need to reach out for help. Dr. Williams says there's also sessions focusing on a very personal topic requested by many patients. A segment on intimacy and sexuality. This was something that a lot of our ladies wanted to be able to talk about, but they didn't feel comfortable speaking with their physician about it. And it's not only the patients who value sensitive topics being covered. The physicians like it, too, because difficult conversations around pregnancy and contraception and the risk of pregnancy while on some of these medications can really come out. How often does a patient meet with their mentor for one-on-one sessions? And for how long? They meet every two weeks. With 12 sessions, the duration of the intervention is 24 weeks. As mentioned, the support groups are less structured. So what happens in group sessions? The topics of discussion are determined by the ladies in the support groups. We do limit the size of those to between four and five ladies as part of those groups. How often and for how long do the group sessions meet? The same as the mentored sessions. So they meet every two weeks and their meetings are for an hour. She also mentioned earlier that participants can live anywhere because of the use of technology in this clinical trial. We have issued iPhones to any ladies who do not own a smartphone so that they can participate in all of their sessions, whether it be support group sessions or mentored sessions via phone. We actually schedule WebEx meetings for our support group sessions so that ladies have the option of participating by phone or by video. At what intervals are assessments made on mentees, mentors, and group participants? We collect baseline assessments at about 12 weeks post-intervention at the 24-week mark, and then the final assessment 12 months after the start so that we can see delayed effects of the intervention. As far as what's being assessed... Disease damage, health literacy, lupus self-efficacy, self-reported disease activity, quality of life, depression, anxiety, patient-centered care, trust in the health care system, social support, health care utilization travel burden, and other barriers to care, and then we ask for a medication log. Once assessments are made, data for the mentored patients is compared with the data for the support group patients. And basically, we're looking at changes in both groups, but we're looking to see if changes are more significant or more substantial in one group compared with another. Dr. Williams and her research team have funding to run the PALS clinical trial for five years. After that, we will probably apply for additional funding to follow our ladies beyond participation in the program. A lot of ladies want this to be something that is like a network for advocacy and support going further into the future. And we're looking to do something with African-American men as well. In hopes of making a positive impact on the disparity of lupus within the African-American community. It's 
very evident that African-American women suffer the greatest burden from lupus. If we can make improvements within this group, then really we're moving the meter with regard to healthcare utilization, healthcare costs, and the public health burden of the disease considerably. Dr. Williams says she wants the PALS program to encourage women with lupus. We're hoping that this program can be that beacon for a lot of these ladies who are coming in very young with this diagnosis that seems like a death sentence and showing them there are other women going through the same thing and are there to walk with them through it. Making today's lupus patients tomorrow's lupus mentors. Equipping our ladies to be able to effectively mentor others in their lives outside of participating in research so that we can really touch more lives with what we're doing than just the women involved in the program right now. And if anyone wants to learn more about the PALS clinical trial, Dr. Williams wants to hear from you. I am happy to share any information directly with folks if they want to contact me. Brian, we'll post more information and links on the CTSI website along with the podcast of this show, right? We definitely will. Thanks, Kayla. Perhaps the most impactful way to learn just how challenging living with lupus can be is to hear from someone who has it. Meet Dana, a local woman who came to our community by way of the South. I was born in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and I've lived in Milwaukee for about 21 years, so I guess I'm a Wisconsinite now. And we're lucky to have her, not the least of which because of her absolute zest for life. I don't just exist, I live, meaning I like to take every day like it will be my last and live it to its fullest. Spending her days doing, well, lots of things. I dibble and dabble. I try to stay in connection with people that I care about. I love family, friends, socializing. I try to stay busy volunteering. I draw and love cooking when I'm up to it. But the reality is that she doesn't always feel up to it. You see, Dana is diagnosed with lupus. She remembers having symptoms of the disease as a young girl. Going back as far as 12, 13 years old, I would have a lot of pain, joint pain. I would get blackouts sometimes from a lot of the things going on with me mentally and physically, and I couldn't figure out what was going on at all. Nor could her family. But that didn't stop people from having an opinion. Some people in my family would say, you're stressed out, you got a lot going on in your life, you need to take it easy. Or on the other end, it would be more like, you're being lazy, come on, you got to get up and go. And I would have no energy. My energy was always zonked. And I just never knew it was lupus. That was my pre-diagnosis situation. And so she lived with lupus, not knowing she had it, into adulthood. I was diagnosed with lupus in October of 2012. Up to that point, she just dealt with the joint pain and lack of energy she experienced since childhood. But then a new symptom led to a diagnosis. There was a rash that I found on the right side of my arm and it just concerned me. So I went to a dermatologist and had it checked out. They biopsied it and I was diagnosed with lupus. It was that raised bump that was the telltale. It wasn't the first she had heard of lupus. 
In fact, I had one friend who was living with lupus and she would always kind of be observant of me. And she said, let me see your fingernail beds. She pressed down on them and she was looking at the coloration. And she said, you know, you're always tired. Your hair is thinning. You should get checked for lupus. And I'm like, lupus was not a word that I heard doctors mention ever. But her friend had recognized the signs. And now with her newest symptom, the rash, a diagnosis came quickly. It was quick compared to some stories I've heard from others. Once I went to that dermatologist, he had the capability to do the testing and that's where it all began from there. As it turns out, Dana is diagnosed with two types of lupus. First, I deal with systemic lupus where it actually affects the kidney. Lupus nephritis is what that's called. And then a cutaneous lupus causing the skin rash which led to her diagnosis. Discoid lupus when it affects the skin. I had the rash pretty much covering all of my extremities pretty badly, dark scaly patches. It cleared up with a lot of treatment, but it comes back during flares. Ironically, when she first learned of her lupus diagnosis, I was in the middle of co-facilitating a training class on living well with chronic illnesses. So I shared with the class that not only am I a co-facilitator, but I'm also a student now because I was just diagnosed with lupus. But teaching others how to live well with their chronic illnesses prepared Dana to deal with her own. Everything that I do is very calculated. There is a word that is used in the lupus community called spoonies, meaning that you only have so many spoons to give out in a day. So I have to really calculate how much I can get done in a day so that my energy is used wisely. Which isn't always easy because of the unpredictability of lupus. The symbol for lupus is a question mark. So day to day is something different. So it's not something that I can say, well, tomorrow my knees are going to give me the blues. You can't plan for whatever comes your way. On the other hand, she is aware of things that can trigger a lupus flare-up. One of the main things that triggers lupus for me is stress, things, people, places that cause the body to do things very opposite from what is the norm. There's others too. Alcohol is a definite no-no. Cigarette smoking, definite trigger. Been clear from that for seven years too. And lupus not only impacts Dana physically, there's psychological impact as well. Knowing that my body does not do the things that it used to do, I get depressed, I get anxiety. When it comes to dealing with the physical, that mental goes hand in hand. Yeah, it goes hand in hand. Making it an equal battle between physical and psychological impacts because they cannot be separated. Not at all. I wish I could, but from my experience, they're inseparable. Meanwhile, she cannot let lupus isolate her from family and friends. She needs their support. I have one child and she is very helpful. There are a lot of people who are instrumental in my life to assist when I'm in such pain or in a funk emotionally. I do rely on a support system to help. But even that can be tricky. So communicating with her support system is key. I use the red, yellow, green light system with my family and friends. So if I'm not going to be productive, it's a red light day. Yellow means I may be able to do some things, but there's no guarantee. Green means I'm feeling pretty Dana-like. Are they generally understanding when it comes to her lupus? People are different. 
but for the most part, people understand because I am open about lupus and how it affects me. She also shares her experience through mentoring and advocating for others with lupus. I learned that you have to adjust, yes, but you're able to live with it. So being able to educate others that it's not a death sentence, it makes me feel so great that it's indescribable. Dana says there's no denying the significant impact lupus has on her day-to-day -day life. Whether I talk about it all the time or I don't, it's still present physically and psychologically for me. I can't get away from it. I accept it. But don't think accepting it means giving up to it. I have lupus, but lupus doesn't have me. For anyone else who has lupus. Know that life is not over. It's a new beginning and you're not alone. You know, as a lupus warrior, we're in a war, yes, but, you know, we will win. And as for you, lupus, Dana is calling you out. You, lupus, will not win this war. Like it or not, lupus, you will not win the war. She means it. And that means we've reached the end for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. David Gaisley, Dr. Edith Williams, and special thanks to Dana. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, along with Kayla Pierce, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows online and on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. You'll also find it wherever you listen to your other favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Bellmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir. <laughs>